Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. So are these your notes? These. Are these your notes about what we're going to say? What does I it say? it would be a good... <laughs> I didn't even get to idea. Okay. Maybe I can just ask you the question. Oh, okay. <laughs> going well it's going really well (laughs) hello and welcome back to the right and wrong podcast now emma being the hot commodity that she is her time is in very high demand and that means she can't always make it to our recordings but i'm very excited to introduce our first guest host you might remember her from a previous episode or from the exciting launch of her debut novel every line of you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Naomi Gibson. Hi, thank you so much for um, inviting me to guest host. I'm really excited. Um, I'm going to do my best to um, do Emma proud, but I won't be attempting to do her Newcastle accent. (laughs) (laughs) Probably best. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought. So this week, it is uh, my huge honour to introduce our guest speaker, who is a director, a screenwriter and New York Times bestselling author, Simone Tonani. Welcome to the show, Simone. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's Welcome. brilliant oh, to have you. It's so great having you, yeah. And uh, congratulations on the release of your latest book, Beasts and Beauty, out right now. How's it, how's it feel? How's it going, putting your latest creation out into the world? <laughs> well, it's funny because it, in a lot of ways, even though this is my seventh book, it feels very different because the first six were in a series. So yeah. this is the first time in a very long time that I, you know, really the first time I've put something out that has expectations and weight around it and all that sort of stuff. But it's such a different kind of book and such a unusual book that I don't have any expectations. You know what I mean? I think it's quite renegade. Um, and so, yeah, I just feel quite relaxed about it because whatever happens happens and it, it, there's nothing quite like it out there. So, you know, there's no, there's no model to follow. <laughs> That's a very Zen mindset you've, you've <laughs> managed to get yourself into there. So how's your pitch for, for this new book? How's your sales pitch? It was just as simple as, you know, I had got, I'm a fairy, fairy tale guy. That's what I write about. You know, that's what the school for Geneva is about. And I just got sort of tired of the old fairy tales. I just thought like they were done. Like there was nothing more we could really do with them anymore in terms of, you know, retellings and all that sort of stuff. Um, And the only way I could sort of like process moving forward with them was to just redo them. So to almost feel like put myself in the head of, you know, the oral tradition and the people who told the stories and wrote them down hundreds of years ago and have an eye to the future as if I had a crystal ball and basically just start from scratch and and rewrite them. So it was, um, it was an immense act of hubris, uh, (laughs) but I felt like, you know, the, the, I was in lockdown and I, I needed something to kind of restore my faith in the world. And I felt like, look, if we redo these stories that sort of got us off on the wrong track, um, maybe it's worth it. What what is it about fairy tales and folklore that really fascinates you? I think it's that, 
they get us off on the wrong foot. Okay. Like we come into life learning those stories and the way they're presented to us now is the good guy always wins and, you know, evil looks a certain way and it's easy to recognize evil. And because of that, we grow up thinking that there's the good guy and the bad guy and our entire life is programmed around that. So then when we get into the political sphere as adults, there's the good side and the bad side. And you, whichever side you identify with, you can torture your position in order to stay on that side, right? Oh, yeah. And so it infects our politics. It infects, infects the way we run our countries. I think fairy tales are, are weirdly responsible for a lot of our ills because we misunderstand what they were meant to do. Because if you look at the original stories, they're much more balanced. And in the original stories, what you end up seeing is that there's a recognition that good and evil each win half the time and they need each other. Like you're only good if you know who the evil guy is and, and you're only evil if you know you recognize that the good good wins sometimes. And there's a give and take between both sides and there's almost this kind of mischievous exchange between the two sides and the understanding that on any given moment you can switch between the sides. And we've sort of lost that. And so part of me was like, how do I restore that? How do I make it so that that, you know, when you're reading these tales, you you feel the kind of edgy uncomfortableness of not quite knowing who the good and evil characters are you know yeah i sort of it, it's a it's a yin and yang right so you've mm-hmm. got the the brightest light cast the darkest shadow yes and also i think what we forget is like especially in these tales often in order for who you who you would think the traditional hero or heroine to win in the end they have to compete uh, like complete a rather gruesome act of murder often. Yes. And so, which never happens in, in Disney really, but like, you know, here sometimes a good guy has to do a quite evil act, you know? And so, um, yeah, I think, I think that was my kind of, you know, that there's no, there's a price for goodness and it often requires going to the dark side. You know, it's just, it isn't just pure self-defense, you know, which is usually how it's structured now, which is, Oh yes, the good guy will beat the evil guy in the end because the evil guy will try to deliver a death blow. And the good guy in order to save himself from the death blow will somehow accidentally kill the evil guy and have no responsibility for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, Classic. Like, Oh, you didn't actually kill him. You sort of just let him die. He killed himself by through your hand. Do you know what I mean? It's dumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, and so that's what I'm, I'm trying to give everybody back their responsibility, you know? And I think that's really the through line of this collection is, is the self-awareness of the, of the main characters and understanding that there is a threat and the self-awareness that they have to handle it. And I think that's, what's missing from the original fairy tales is everyone is so oblivious and doesn't understand what they're facing. And I feel like we are, in an era now where we are we are an awake enough to know what we are up against we're we're no longer asleep so we need new fairy tales yeah no i had so i have to ask how do you feel about the sort of classic disney uh interpretations then i mean i think they sell a lot of toys and <laughs> and they're they're they, they just rely on this myth of that the good guy will always win and we identify who the good guy is, which is why I'm not surprised that they bought Marvel and bought Star Wars because all those yeah. stories are the same. They're all different fairy tales. They're essentially the same story over and over again. So, you know, it's okay, but what you're doing is you're contorting the story. Like Little Mermaid, Ariel is the villain of that story, you know, very clearly the villain of that story because she's the one who makes all the mistakes and Ursula doesn't go seeking her out, you know, like Ariel goes to her. Yeah, like true. So, 
the fact that she wins in the end, I think, is such a perversion of justice in a lot of ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, in Hans Christian Andersen's version, she dies and the sea witch lives, you know. So I think it's uh, it, it, the Disney versions are there to, you know, give you this reaffor- reaffirming view that the good guy always wins. But ultimately, I think it, it sabotages our development a bit. Yeah. Yeah, you I, know? I can see that. I wonder what America would be like if we had learned the real stories, you know, <laughs> the Grimm stories. Right. Yeah, like I, I wish, like you know, I wish there was a, 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 I wish there was an alternate universe where, like, kids could all read Beast and Beauty instead, and we could see what the world looked like instead, fifty years later. A much darker place, I think, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe, but I, I honestly don't think so. I actually think it would be the opposite. Oh, really? I think, I think if you teach, like that the good guy always wins, then both sides are going to be claiming the mantle of goodness and there will never be compromise because there's going to be this understanding that there's, there's um, a mutually exclusiveness between good and evil. Whereas I think in my book, what, what it's saying is that there's an exchange and there's a balance and, and there is no, you can't identify with good or evil because you have to sort of play on both sides often. Yeah. And so I think you'd end up with, I just think you'd have people who, who didn't operate from this place of one side good, one side bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That idea that there must be good for evil and it and it needs to be balanced, that is the sort of cent- center philosophy of the series, School for Good and Evil. Yes, 100%. Um, changing, yeah, yeah. changing tact a little bit here, talking about you, you, you as a writer, as a, your journey as a writer and, and publishing, you have been... You've got this new book out, but it, you were working on the School for Good and Evil series for just under a decade. Mm-hmm. How did it feel yeah. moving on to something a bit different? I think I was ready. You know, I, th- I think it, the, the, the School for Good and Evil books had gotten um, difficult to write in the sense of there was so much story. You know, they yeah. had become almost like Game of Thrones where just to get to a climactic scene, moving everyone around was highly difficult. Ah. You know, they were just moving the chess pieces. And I think those last three books are, I think each book gets, you know, better and better because I think I got stronger as a writer and I think I was able to um, kind of, in a way, relax because I knew that there was a built-in audience. And with that, I think I felt less pressure almost. I felt like I could just take risks and enjoy myself. And I think because of that, the books got better and better as you went along. But I think there came a point where, like, you needed a reset. You know, it had got by book six was the last book that could handle the weight of right. um, the, the amount of story involved. And so I think I was just ready. And that's why I think Beast and Beauty is so simple. You know, it's so clear and simple and it's just about like, you know, good, precise writing, you know, and, and the kind of writing that, um, I feel like, uh, sort of each story has its own tone and voice and it was, it was an opportunity to kind of flex a lot of different muscles and try a lot of different things, you know, like Cinderella, for instance, I remember, I wrote Bluebeard, which is so dark and kind of sensual and has this kind of like Anne Rice like feel to it. And it, it just is a very like deep and dark tale. And then when I was done, I was just in this kind of like dark hole and like, I just didn't know what to do next. And then like Cinderella came to me next, which is this kind of Almodovarian sex farce, you know, it's just like a <laughs> Spanish sex farce from start to finish where, you know, the prince is like a philander and, you know, <laughs> starts with um 
uh, a, a sort of busty girl at a melon stand and a prince getting one look at her melons. And you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just ludicrous. And my editor is like, how are you going to sully your <laughs> beautiful you know, collection of tales with this smut? And I was just like, <laughs> listen, this is going to be everyone's favorite story. And she's like, everyone's I hate it. And I mean, like everything I hear from people on, on social so far is like, Oh my God, Cinderella. I'm like, I know, obviously every, it's just cause it comes after a dark stretch in the book. And so the moment Cinderella comes on, everybody's like, yeah, you know, it's yeah. like the, it's like the party song after, after the deep slow song. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's cool. Yeah, I think it, it, it just was an opportunity. It was, a, you know what I thought of it as was um, making an album. That's what it felt like. Oh, it felt okay. like I yeah. You know, it's where every story had. Did you think there was like a different writing process when it came to um, writing a short story than there was to writing a novel and then that turned into like a six-part series? Do you think there's a difference there? Oh, yeah, 100%. Because I think when you write short stories, there has to be such a precision of execution, you know? Sure. yeah. So I think you have to go into it thinking as its own mini piece you know it, it exactly like an album uh, an album is the best way i can think about it because you need each song to work on its own and yeah. be a complete from start to finish but then it also has to work in unity with everything else yeah so it has to be a complete kind of listening or reading experience and so that's why i felt with this one and what's funny about this one is normally with an album you record a bunch of songs and you throw things out and you sort of put it together mm-hmm. this one i wrote in order and so I think each one informed the next and nothing was out of order in the end. It was exactly as I, as I sort of, you know, generated it. So mm-hmm. I think it just sort of came out in that order. I think my brain, as I was writing each one was configuring the what the next one should be. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So do you think, um, did you set out to, um, with a specific order in mind or not? Or did you kind of pants it? Yeah, no, I think it was just totally one by one. Yeah. Each one was, it was, uh, when I finished a story, it would tell me what the next one would be. Oh, that's amazing. Wow, what a writing yeah. process. <laughs> <laughs> that's my, whole, my writing process is like that in general. My brain doesn't like to tell, to get too far ahead, because if it gets mm-hmm. too far ahead, I think I, I start to get bored. I yeah, like to be sure. surprised as I go along. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> writing in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So was, was that similar to when you were writing School for Good and Evil? As in, 100%. You yeah. didn't plan the future books. It was just you finish one and you thought, right, what's next? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I think like, yeah, everything just sort of happened in a very sort of like flowy, improvisatory, instinctive way, which is funny because they're so highly constructed and tightly wound and they're detective stories and there's twists and all that stuff. So from the outside, it looks impossible <laughs> that they weren't like planned to the last detail. But I just... I just trust the little elves inside me to know that kind of stuff better than if I consciously planned it. I don't think consciously you can plan something that big. Mm. I know, I know. It's very genius. I don't know. I mean, Rowan did it with Potter where she planned out every little thing, but Mm. I don't know. I just, I don't find like that, that can work because it just relies so much on your sort of cerebral brain. And I find that quite limited. Yeah. I feel like you don't get the good stuff, you know? So I have to go into like the, the sort of unconscious to find the answers. Right. That's cool. Was um, the first school of good and evil, was that the first 
novel that you had written in its entirety start to finish. 100%. And I think what's interesting about that is I think that's why it was successful was because I had come from screenwriting. Right. So I didn't really know how to write a novel. And so that first School for Good and Evil is just pure pace. It sort of like overwhelms you. It's just like the pace of storytelling and the visualness of yeah. the storytelling. It's nonstop. Yeah. I think it, yeah, I think kids were like, oh my God, this is a book? And it was like <laughs> consuming like a gallon of sugar. Do you know what I mean? Like it was just like, <laughs> I remember my editor, when she first read it, she's like, um, it was 135,000 words and we had to get it down to 100,000. She's like, we have to cut a third. And mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm not cutting any story. I said, because I'm just... That's the story. And she's like, then you're going to have to cut words. She's like, you're going to have to make it move faster. And so I didn't cut a single beat of story in that book. I just cut words. And so I took out a third just by shortening sentences and moving things. And so it just moves. It's just like a bullet train. It does. Yeah. It's a happening. And so I think because of that, it, it just got a lot of kids like, I always give even boys are like boys are like we want we don't read we play video games I'm like try 20 pages and after 20 pages you can put it down then sure and like they just get hooked because it's so fast you know like it feels faster than a video game sometimes you know so um, and then of course the subsequent books sort of settle into a novelistic pace once I figured it out uh, but that first one I think was um, sort of a surprise. So was that how you came to writing fiction then through screenplay writing? Through screenplays, yeah. I mean, I always wanted to, I think, write a book, but I just never thought it was possible. I thought it would be too lonely, too boring. Hmm. You know, I just didn't, I I was like, someone has to, like, I, I couldn't find the will to do it on spec, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was just lucky that when I finally did get a publishing deal, like, it was before I'd written the whole book, you know? Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah, it, it, uh, I think they bought it off like um, a synopsis and multiple chapters. Oh, so wow. I didn't have to like go through the process of, of being completely surrendered to chance on what was going to happen with this long piece of work. You oh, know? that's amazing. Cause, yeah, that's really good. Because me and Naomi are f- from the UK, so we're familiar with how the publication path works here in the UK, where essentially yeah. you, you write your you write your piece and then you submit to agents, you submit to yes. publishers, all this and that. What, so what was that path like for you? So I didn't have to do it because what ended up happening was I wrote a very intricate sort of 90-page proposal for what the series would be. Okay. Um, and then my producer on another screenplay I had written who had done all these big movie adaptations of children's books like Ella Enchanted and you know Indian in the Cupboard and all these books – Mm-hmm. Um, she read it and she was like, I think we can get a deal for this based on the proposal and the couple sample chapters you have, you know? Um, and we sent it to 17 publishers and 16 said, no, cause there's no book. <laughs> and, um, we need, we need a book because he's never written a novel before. So we need to see what we're buying. Sure. And Harper Collins panicked cause they thought everybody else was bidding and they bought all three books. Just based <laughs> That's amazing. So they had a complete utter panic <laughs> we would need to preempt pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, so you actually really like, wrote it as a screenplay first? Well, as a proposal. As yeah. a like, um, yeah, it's just like a sort of uh, kind of short version of the whole book. Um, oh, that's and so, um, yeah, it just was, it was luck and timing and all of that. You know, they just felt pressure thinking that everybody else was bidding on this thing. Mm. Well, and, uh, and a wonderfully sort of, I want to say unique idea, but it's yeah. it's so much trope subversion. The whole like series of School for Good and Evil and, and Beast and Beauty, you know, following in the same trend is you, you've taken something that people know very well and are familiar with. And you've said, well, what if it's not? What if it's this? What if that was yes, this? Way? Yes, uh, which is great. And it's such a cool concept. Yeah. And I think also like, you know, Potter had passed mm. and it left a lane for a new magic school if yeah. someone was willing to take on the risk. And I just, that's my nature. I just go straight at risk, like, all the time. <laughs> and so I just was like, well, what didn't she do well? Like, there were, there's so many things she did well, but what were the things she didn't do well? And I felt like the things she, two things she didn't do well were she didn't do romance well. That was like, mm. it just wasn't the thing. And I felt like um, the other thing was that Gryffindor was so highly privileged and Slytherin was so stereotyped and ignored. And so I was like, well, if I elevate and make these books about the rise of the villains Mm -hmm. and make romance sort of the the center focus, I have a lane, you know? So my books are just like pure kind of romantic melodrama. Um, And, (laughs) you know, and it's all about the Slytherin kids, you know? So I think that was, that was what, and, yeah, and it's it just what's funny is we expected Potter comparisons and felt like that's what we were going to have to deal with for all the years of Spoofing Evil, and we just never got them. Like, they just never came because it's they're so different, you know? Yeah, it, it, it yeah. is wildly just, different. Outside of being a school, it's so uh, yeah. different. And I, I, I agree with you. I've always thought one of the biggest opportunities that was missed in Harry Potter was championing one person from Slytherin. Like, it could have been any... Yeah side character or anything but there needed to be one good person in Slytherin who was championed as like a a good guy like a good 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 girl like a like a star or not you not even needed to be good but sexy at least like do you know what I mean like someone who like yeah who like when they when showed up people were a little nervous like Draco was just so sniveling and useless and so (laughs) you know like fan fiction turned him into like a sex symbol but I just felt like (laughs) like the fans had to do that you know what I mean like they had to create the dark like like Mm. edgy but like you know I just thought let's have a whole school full of them you know like and so I think that was the that was, but that wasn't her thing. Her thing was magic, you know. And yeah. I, I'm, mm. I'm generally uninterested in magic because, like, magical systems and all that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, because I just don't think it was my my realm of fantasy when I was young. Yeah. You know, I, I I wasn't dreaming of magic. I was dreaming of romance. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. I feel like what I'm what I want is like fantasy romances and. and I'll use magic to to beat that up, but I'm less interested in intense systems and magics and spells and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I would say the other thing that that um, your 
books do that Harry Potter doesn't do in the same it's Harry Potter's is is what we were talking about it's it's quite black and white in terms of there are the good guys and the bad guys yes, you, yes, your yeah. books tend to deal with a much larger moral gray area where it's you know people are good and bad you know people do bad stuff but they also do good stuff and yeah. that's something that Harry Potter doesn't never never really dealt with addressed in that way yeah I think it, it uh, yeah I think it just came down to that was our mode of storytelling for a very long time. Potter, Star mm. Wars, Marvel, like, you know, it just became about good versus evil. And I'm just trying to get people out of that mode of thinking. Cause I just think it, it is poisoning the way that we treat each other. Yeah. yeah. No, it's great. And you, you do a great job with it. And speaking about Harry Potter films, screenplays, school of good and evil, you, you, you proposed it when you proposed it and sort of got picked up by a publisher was that picked up as screenplay as well as book or was it book and then later the screenplay got optioned no it was a it was book first and then universal bought it as a movie the day the book came out oh, wow. um, awesome. uh, like a couple of years later That's so the best publication day news you want isn't it it was pretty intense I remember when it, it hit the bestseller list and and universal bought it Awesome. on the same day and wow. i just thought what has happened to my life yeah, I'm living in that's amazing. yeah i'm living in an apartment with five people like <laughs> everything smells bad like it just <laughs> I, like you know what i mean like and then i'm trying to explain to them i'm like oh like it just was sort of out of a dream but then of course you have the seven years of development where everything goes to hell you know? oh, sure. um, yeah. and so but then netflix ultimately picked it up and by the time netflix picked it up um you know, there'd been multiple writers and I really worked hard during the process to get everything, to get the script better and better as time went along, mm-hmm. you know? Were um, you always working on the screenplay? That was always... I was always way. there. Yeah. And okay. so there were some writers who were not receptive to either me or anybody's input and it would just sort of like mm. become something else and then they would get fired and then mm. there would be like a new writer who suddenly was interested in my feedback and it would be quite close. We'd work quite closely together. You know what I mean? It was just like, you had to sort of ride the roller coaster. Um, but little by little, the script got better and better and better. And by the time we went to Netflix, um, it was in really good shape. And so then Paul Feig read it, uh, you know, and signed on immediately. And we were in production within a year, you know, he did his rewrite and, we were off to the races. So I, I think cool. it was this case of you needed those years where it went through the slog, but yeah, it was getting exactly. better and better and better. You know, yeah. I just think the Hollywood system of development is, um, you know, and Netflix is uh, thankfully um, the streamers are a little more nimble about it, but the old time studios just, you know, their way of doing things is ridiculous because you would get a script to a certain point, hire a new writer and then the writer would throw out that script and start from scratch. You're constantly like, oh right, just rewriting, starting from starting anew. Yeah, it's just it oh, happens with every movie. You know, what I mean, you can, it's very hard to build momentum. You know, mm. it's just money and time down the drain often. <laughs> sure. Frustrating. Really frustrating. Um, so obviously, because you were involved as in, in the screenplay sort of from day one. Um, would you say you had quite a lot of creative control over it? I mean, a lot of the time, you know, you get a movie come out after a book and there's quite significant differences between the two. How do you think that compares for you? 
I think in this case, like at least for, I can't, oh, there were a lot of twists and turns along the way where I would lose creative control, get it back, lose it, get it mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. I think in this case, um, the final product definitely has changes from the book, but they're all changes that like I heavily support. Yeah. Like they were, they were changes that I was, that I either came up with myself at some point during the process. Like the, there's a huge change. Um, in it, like outside of the movie that I came in with myself because I just thought it would be a great way to, to work with act one, you know, like, and I'm sure some fans will be up in arms about it, but like (laughs) I, I started in film. I know what, what works on screen structurally and things like that. And it's different than what's in a novel. Yeah. The different Mm -hmm. media for sure. Yeah. So I think it was a case of, um, you know, not being so precious about the book and making sure that the movie is um, its own thing. But at the same time, I think the movie is the most faithful adaptation of a, of a like children's fantasy, fantasy novel. Like I've right. seen in a long time. I mean, other than the Potters and hunger games that are literally beat for beat the books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think in terms of spirit and what it's like, I just think it's immensely faithful, you know, oh, little story points here and there. We definitely changed to make it more seamless, but it's, it's, you know, it's pretty close to the book. That's great. Cause a lot of the time, you know, you hear creators aren't happy with deviations that have happened, but I mean, obviously if you heavily support them and you're really, really happy with it, then that's like, you know, the best of both worlds, isn't it? I think it's funny because I think, you know, the, what ends up happening in a book is when you read it, you have your vision of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you try to like completely make that what is on screen, I think you end up disappointed. Hunger Games, the first two Harry Potters are the books. Mm. And I found them flat because my imagination is much bigger and better than what can be conceived on screen. So I think what you often want to do is preserve the really iconic scenes, the scenes that everybody's looking for. Mm -hmm. But then the in-between, you want to be able to play a little and sort of like mess with structure a little and collapse things and move things around so that a reader will feel like, Oh, I know this world, but I'm being surprised as I go, you know, but then the key scenes that they're really desperate to see are pretty much, you know, intact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you have, awesome. did you have any input on the casting? Cause obviously you've created these characters and you must have quite a vivid idea of how they looked. Did you get, yeah, any I, in that? I think it's a little different because when I wrote it back in, um, 2011, mm-hmm. uh, I was going straight at Disney. And so okay. in a way I was taking the Disney archetype. So the main characters, you know, I was sort of taking the, the fairy godmother and taking the, um, you know, sort of like black haired witch and, and the blonde sure. princess and the blonde prince. And so there was a, there was a sense of like, I wanted it to look like a Disney fairy tale back in 2011. So diversity just wasn't uh... like highly present in uh, the main cast. And at the same time, also back then mm-hmm. as an author of color, getting a big fantasy book published mm-hmm. with non-white characters was not happening. So, you know, there was a double, there was sort of a double reason for doing it. Um, but with the movie, we wanted to start scratch and basically would be like, okay, we're not going to do Potter where everybody's white, you know, we're sure. going to, we're going to mix things up. So, um, it's a great cast. I mean, we, yeah, and Paul's, Paul's so good. And, and so known for my yeah. actors for his work. And so he's able to throw the doors open and be like, give me the best person for every part. 
you know, and they come awesome. to them. So I think that's just, uh, you know, having Paul on board meant that we were just getting, you know, the best actors for every role, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait. I think it looks absolutely brilliant. The cast looks so exciting. The book it is really brilliant. Does. I yeah. need to get through the whole series now. I'm about two books in. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. But... Yeah, you have a lot of insanity ahead of you. Um, <laughs> no, but, but I think it'll be good. I think it'll be good. I mean, um, I was on set for a while in Belfast, and and you know, I'm coming to London. In fact, um, next week or the week after um, okay. to check in on things. So I feel like it, it. Everything just looks really good, and and you know, I'm super excited about it. About it. I think there's a ways to go, just because with these kinds of movies. Um, you know, Paul has to finish his edit. He has to do his effects. He has to do, there's so many things. It's just, yeah. it's, yeah. it's a large, large movie. So I think, um, you know, we're, we're a ways away from, um, I think, uh, it being ready to, to be, to, to show up on Netflix in your queue. Sure. I'll look out for the trailer at some <laughs> point. Care, yeah. yeah probably next year sometime. I think, honestly, here's what's also funny. I think studios are quite, um, early with trailers. Trailers usually come out like, six eight months ahead yeah. of the movie yeah. you know netflix it's like eight weeks <laughs> amazing <laughs> it's, uh, it's really you know it's it's close to when it comes out so i think um i think it's just a different timeline but, you know yeah <laughs> it's, it's the new timeline it's a new time yeah exactly yeah. now you you've already shared a lot of your experiences and, and how you've kind of got to where you are uh I was wondering if you could, for anyone looking to get into writing, filmmaking, uh, screenplays, what advice would you give to them if they're looking to break into those industries now? I think you just have to find the thing that makes you special in terms of a story. You know what I mean? Like if you go out mimicking other people, then you can be replaced. And I think you have to find a story that only you can tell. I always, before I start a book, I think, can anyone else do this? You know, it's, I've been toying with this book um, that I want to do. That's more an adult novel. And I don't know if I'm going to do it, but in my head, I keep thinking, can anyone else do it? Mm. And I'm like, no, because if a straight guy writes it, then he's going to get in trouble. If a girl writes it, she's going to get in trouble, but I can write it and I won't get in trouble. So there's like, there's something about it where it's like, it's mine to do. Yeah. And like it's almost like what I'll do sometimes if I have an idea, I'll just tell everybody about it for like a year, hoping somebody else will take it or steal it or do something with it. <laughs> That's really funny. And then like That's like the terrible you know, of it. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes like I'll just keep talking about it and then I'll I'll like I had an idea for a book and um been toying around for it and then I turned on HBO Max one day and there was a new show that was that story. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, like, like, because I put it into the ether looking for someone to take it, like someone else in the world, like, you know, vibrationally, like had the same idea at the same time. Like, it's just one of these things where that, that gap when I had the idea and being afraid to write it or not sure if it was my story to tell, Mm. like at some point somebody else had the idea and it was case in point why i shouldn't have done it do you know what i mean yeah. like it's a, i think sometimes like you have to sit with an idea and wait for someone else to do it yeah um and then when if it's getting stronger and stronger all along which in this case this adult novel idea i have um then maybe it's time for me to do it 
you know, so I don't write an idea unless I've had it for at least three, four years. Wow. Amazing. So we're getting to that part of the podcast now where we ask um, our favorite question and I get to ask. Woohoo. <laughs> um, so, someone, if you were trapped on a desert island and you could take um, no. Oh my gosh, I've messed it up. Oh, right. <laughs> I'll start again. You are trapped on a desert island and you have one book to keep you company. What is your book? You know, the book I reread over and over and over again, and it's anytime anyone compared um, School for Good and Evil to Harry Potter or who knows what else, I was like, you guys have totally missed it. Because <laughs> the book, it really, really is a lot like is Auntie Mame by Patrick Dennis. Oh. Okay. Um, and that's the book I've read the most times, and it's the one that is the most uh, used for School for Good and Evil. Like the pace of that book, the mischief, the sort of like vampiness of it, the detail, the character of Mame. I mean, Sophie is Mame in a lot of ways. <laughs> like, oh, I just think that book is spectacular. And he, to me, is one of the best writers ever. Mm-hmm. underrated writers and that book is there's a reason that that book has been translated into every single medium ever um but what's funny is after he did a few books he quit writing and became a butler no oh, that's like so he weird. went to a rich family and became a butler and it's so strange to me wow you'd think like, it'd be the other way around or something people don't seem to quit know, writing <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, you're so good at it, but like i don't know what they just something who knows, you know, back then in the 50s, life was different. But um, maybe that yeah, was that always his dream to be a maybe, butler. You never know. Maybe you the greatest know. butler in the world. You, <laughs> know, you never know. But that book is, that book is sensational. Amazing. Sensational. That's a great choice. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us, Soman. It's been so great. Um, speaking with you for everyone listening if you want to keep up with um, Soman's activities whatever he's doing you can follow him on Twitter at Soman Chainani or on Instagram at Soman C to keep up with this podcast and everything we're doing you can follow us at Right and Wrong UK on Twitter and on Instagram at Right and Wrong Podcast don't forget to check out Soman's book uh, Beast and Beauty which is out now and also all of his books from the School for Good and Evil awesome series (laughs) yes thank you so much it was a pleasure talking to you that was fascinating thank you for having me I'm so excited to be here thank you thank you and thank everyone for listening we'll see you next time bye bye everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.